1: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening. Occasionally on this show, we bring in outside guests to come in and keep things fresh and different instead of just focusing on one deal of the week, you know, keep it hip for the kids. So that's what we're going to do this week. And what's hipper than a look at the importance of employment and benefits on M&A? But seriously, this is a topic we've ignored for long enough on this show, and we've actually gotten several emails about addressing this. So I wanted to bring it up today and speak to an expert. So Basically, I'm talking about how compensation issues, both at the executive level and for just rank-and-file employees, impact a company's decision when it comes down to either buying or selling. Because if you think about this, one company, when they buy another one, it's really incredibly complicated from an employee standpoint. You have to take over medical benefits, you have to pay out deferred compensation and any residual stock options. You may have to take over pensions and union contracts need to be negotiated or renegotiated. And, of course, you may have to fire a lot of people in order to meet your stated synergy total. So there's so many issues there and and many more that I didn't just list right there. And these things are often glossed over in the business press as sort of obvious things that happen. But someone actually has to make them happen and help make them happen. And that's why I wanted to speak to Sean Feller today. He is a lawyer at Gibson Dunn in Los Angeles who specializes in executive compensation and employee benefits, particularly relating to M&A situations. And he joins us now from sunny, well, at least I'm guessing sunny Los Angeles. Sean, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. Is it, in fact, sunny in Los Angeles this morning? Uh, it is, in fact, sunny and warm, and it's a beautiful day that I'm looking out over right now.
1: Yeah, I assume that was the fact. Isn't it almost always the case like <laughs> that, that in Los Angeles? That's um, right. But I'm not bitter or jealous. Anyways, uh, so look, let's start with this. Why don't you describe your job to our listeners and sort of when you're typically called in to an M&A situation is at the beginning or at the end, and then sort of what do you do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my role uh, in an M&A transaction is really to shepherd through all uh, issues relating to executive compensation and employee benefits. That's all I focus on uh, in my practice: is compensation and benefits issues. Uh, and in M and A transactions, as you as you mentioned, there are lots of those issues. Uh, typically, we're called in um, after the deal has already started and progressed a little bit. Um, although sometimes the benefits issues are things that people are very concerned about from the outset of the deal, and so we might be called in, uh, you know, very early on to to us to uh, Provide some advice or review some documents and see see what's out there.
1: And so, at this point, the deal has, of course, not been made public. So you are advising the client, sort of on uh, you know whether or not to move forward with the transaction. And assuming they do move forward with the transaction, uh, uh, what what the the. Costs or gains may be to your client. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so sometimes you know we'll be called in because uh, you know a client is looking at a potential M and A target, uh, especially if it's a public company, um, or but even at a private company, and they'll say, hey, can you take a look at you know the employment agreements, at the equity plans, and give us a sense as to what uh, what is out there, what potential costs there might be, um, and like I said, sometimes that's very early on, and so. Um, especially if it's a transaction where they're very concerned that maybe management might leave or that they're going to need to terminate a bunch of members of management and they want to get a handle on what those costs would be at the very sort of upfront in the pricing stage of the deal, uh, then we'll be called in to uh, review the, the employment contracts, the benefit plans uh, to see what's out there. But um, then, like you said, once the deal is progressing, uh, we're in there discussing the benefits provisions in the transaction documents uh, and also helping the buyer or seller deal with, uh, start to think about post-closing integration issues, which you do think about during the deal. Because if you don't think about it at the the upfront, it usually goes poorly uh, in the integration phase.
1: All right. So let's start at the very highest level, at the CEO level. Um, There are certainly times that I have encountered covering deals, one that comes to mind immediately is when uh, Charter was uh, buying Time Warner Cable, where there was a big headline number out there in terms of a golden parachute, where a CEO seemingly had an obvious motivation to sell. I I don't remember what the exact number was when Rob Marcus sold Time Warner Cable, but it was in the ballpark of like $80 million he got uh, if he was able to sell the company. I'm curious, are there certain things an investor can look at in terms of looking at an executive's contract that may signal that someone is more or less likely to sell?
2: Right. I mean, I think that uh, I haven't seen too many situations where you know, the the CEO is driving for a sale solely because of what the payout is going to be, or because there's such a huge incentive. I should say, uh, a lot of times those numbers that you see are, are severance benefits, and so in some sense they might get that there might be some enhanced severance if it's in a change of control scenario. So that's. You know, one thing where it makes it easier, certainly for a CEO to um, go along with the transaction, especially from the sell side, because uh, they might think that they're going to be terminated. But if they have, uh, you know, some severance package that especially if there's some enhanced severance that pays out more following a change of control, which is often the case, that might. Uh, provide a little bit of a cushion to the CEO, but I don't know that it's necessarily a motivating factor uh, to be terminated because obviously you get that severance because you no longer have a job, um, and so sometimes uh, you know CEOs would rather stay employed than than receive a severance package, but. Certainly, um, change of control severance and accelerated vesting of equity could be a motivating factor if you have a lot of, if a CEO has a lot of unvested equity, but that happens to be deep in the money uh, stock options or has a lot of uh, unvested restricted stock, uh, that could be a motivating factor to get some accelerated vesting. Um, But again, those would naturally vest over time or based on performance. And so the the change of control is not the only way that the CEO is going to be able to realize on those incentives. Um, But sometimes those incentives can be a motivating factor.
1: Yeah, I would think they would be a motivating factor in the sense of, so in the Time Warner Cable example, Rob Marcus was a brand new CEO brought in by the board when the company was already moving toward being in play. And I would think that when his contract was structured or when a new CEO is elevated by the board in a situation where they sort of know a sale might be more imminent than not, that's when you might see – compensation and severance benefits crafted in a particular way to incentivize a sale, is that is that right? Do we see that?
2: I think it's fair. Um, it, I don't know if it's necessarily to incentivize a sale or if it's to ins- to entice the CEO to come over. If it's already a company that's in play, they might say, "Look, we I need some additional protection because there's a high likelihood of a sale." I see. So it's more that the CEO wants the protection uh, rather than the board trying to motivate a sale. But certainly, there are boards that are are put in place incentives that would that could motivate a sale if that's what the board is looking to do. I mean, uh, certainly I've seen some examples um, even at public companies where it specifically says, you know, this equity will vest based upon completion of a strategic transaction. I I think that's rare, but you do see that from time to time where the boards are thinking about how to incentivize uh, a sale process.
1: All right. So that's sort of the highest level. Now let's just go to sort of your generic Employee, I listed a few in the the introduction, but give us a sense of the varying, complicating factors that you work with from a benefits and employment contract uh, situation, where buyers must deal with potentially destroying these incentives when agreeing to purchase another company.
2: Right, and so you know the biggest ones that are out there and that come up first in a transaction is what are you going to do with uh, equity incentives, and so you have stock options or restricted stock or restricted stock units at the seller company, and how are those going to be treated in the transaction is one of the first issues that you deal with. Um, But then there are other issues like what if there are retirement plans or pension plans. um, As a buyer, you need to understand what those potential costs and and historic liabilities might be uh, for uh, union employees or for non-union employees in in retirement plans. Um, You also have to deal with integrating health and welfare plans, uh, and retirement plans and other employee benefits. Uh, are you going to keep the existing benefit structure in place? Are you going to move employees onto the buyer's benefit structure? And so that's something that when you're, uh, doing the transaction itself, you're thinking about how best to structure it from that perspective. And then you're looking at just the regular employee issues. Are you going to be, what what incentives can you put in place to retain employees? Um, what severance arrangements will you provide to give a soft landing to employees that you might be terminating or transitioning out Uh, and what about employees that you want to keep for maybe a short period of time uh, as opposed to for a longer period of time how do you incentivize people to stay for a three to six or one-year transition period, if that's all you need them for. Uh, And then there's other tax issues that come up. When you talk about golden parachutes, um, there are uh, the golden parachute excise tax that you have to deal with uh, and think about and give some consideration to. uh, You need to deal with union contracts. And so there's a, a whole host of issues that come up. Uh, both in the negotiation phase uh, and as you get closer to the integration phase of a transaction. So, let's
1: talk about the medical benefits portion and the 401k benefits portion. I'm wondering, I personally have, I suppose, fortunately, uh, not. I have not in my professional career have had to go through Uh, A situation where the company I was working for was acquired by another company. So I don't know this firsthand, but you, having worked on many of these, can probably answer this. Is there a standard playbook to how this works? In other words, does the acquiring company typically move all of the targets employees to their existing 401k and healthcare benefits, or do they keep them on whatever they had? Uh, Before that, and then maybe over a period of time, they sort of slowly transition them onto the new plan. Is is there sort of a a standard way this is done?
2: Yeah, I would say that... it typically happens, um, it, it depends on the size of the transaction. So if you're talking about a transaction, sort of a merger, a big public company, merger of equals type transaction where you're bringing on board 10, 15, 20, 50,000 new employees, there you're much more likely to say, we're going to keep those employees on their existing program for you know a year to through the end of the calendar year or for maybe even longer than that and then transition them over into the benefit program that we have in place. Um, but a lot of the times... Uh, especially if it's a smaller transaction, it can happen immediately. So it can be, um, you know, where the buyer says to the seller, "You need to terminate all of your benefit plans before the, cl- you know, at the closing date." And then immediately the next day, employees are given, you know, a new handbook and say, "Okay, now we're going to onboard you into our benefit plans starting from day one." Um, so I, you can do it either way. More typically, um, you know companies keep existing plans in place if there's a large workforce coming over or if it's if it's smaller they might want to immediately integrate them into their program
1: can you think of a specific instance something you've worked on uh, you don't have to mention the company names exactly but where employee benefits actually doomed a deal like in other words is there a story you can think of where the deal didn't happen because the the issues were so, complicated or, or, or potentially disastrous that the whole deal got blown up?
2: I would say that's extremely rare. I mean, usually that doesn't happen with employer-related issues. Um, but, you know, things that could sort of scare a company off, where I've seen that a company starts to look at a business and then decides not to even uh, consider a transaction or walks away from a deal at a very early stage, might be, you know, union or pension issues where there are significant unfunded pensions that maybe the buyer didn't realize were there. But once we started looking at it, it became obvious that there were some significant potential liabilities that were going to come due very soon or that could impact the you know, ability to realize synergies and things like that because they had these historic liabilities. Um, I've also seen transactions where you know an executive team um, or CEO had very significant severance benefits or change of control benefits that the buyer just said, look, we're not doing the deal unless you give up some of those benefits. And, you know, a lot of times I've seen situations where the executives agree to give those up or other times where deals kind of fall apart, but it's rare. Um, Usually the issues that we find, buyers see them and say, okay, great, we're we're glad that we know about those um, and we'll, you know, take those into account in pricing or things like that, but they're not things that actually kill a transaction.
1: So just just to press on that last point, when you're talking about the executive benefits, are you talking about like perks, like Private jet or something of that? Deal.
2: No, no. I was more thinking it's it's you know a large transaction bonus um, or a large severance benefit that the buyer says we're not doing this deal and then immediately going to pay you out ten million dollars. So if you're willing to give up some of that, then we'll proceed with the transaction. Or they'll say to the board, you know, if you're willing, if you can convince your executive team to take less, we will consider this transaction. I see.
1: I see. Yeah. And and by the way, I'm, this deal certainly may never even get to the point of being considered. But just for our own listeners, I can tell you one company that came to immediate mind when you mentioned uh, union contracts and pension issues is Verizon. Of course, Verizon is so big that very, very few companies could buy it in general. But I do know that Verizon uh, has outstanding issues on both of those ends, and that perhaps down the road could prevent a company, let's say like Comcast, to come in and make a giant merger offer. Uh, It's something that I have at least heard um, talked about already by uh, some bankers and lawyers that work in the industry that are thinking about how the U.S. telecommunications may uh, industry may uh, end up merging down the road once these wireless spectrum auctions end in a couple weeks, but that you know I'm sure we'll be talking about that general issue more on this podcast uh, as the year progresses.
2: Oh, I was gonna say, and you you do see that, right? And so you have companies that have these um, historic liabilities uh, that you know it becomes very expensive because all of a sudden you've got a large unfunded pension, and um, those things, uh, those historic liabilities will come due at some point. And you see that less, obviously, especially in sort of technology sectors where um, you know there aren't pension benefits. And and as we move away from pensions more generally and into just 401k plans, that becomes less of an issue. But there are, as you mentioned, there are definitely companies out there that have those those problems.
1: And I, I'm assuming, by the way, I don't know this for sure, but you're right. I mean, you know, generally speaking, older people have pensions and younger people do not. Has that just been a product of it's cheaper for the employee to not offer these sort of outstanding pensions and the 401k is sort of more uh, corporate friendly? Or was there some other logistic reason why that changed as sort of industries change
2: yeah i think it's a the cost issue is the biggest one um you know defined benefit pensions are very expensive to companies and they're these long long they have long tails on them whereas with a defined contribution plan you put the money in and that's it and and the, the employees have their investment gains and losses but there isn't a this ongoing obligation to fund a pension that you've promised that that may be unfunded um and I think so I think the cost issue was the main reason, although, you know, there are benefits to the 401 k plan in terms of uh, you know it gives the employees more individual control over how their retirement funds are invested. Um, but that is certainly something, you know, looming out there outside of the m and a context, obviously, but something out there uh, in corporate America that has been a big shift over the last twenty years, but um, and and something that that people think about a lot.
1: Are there major differences from when, you're dealing with a public buyer versus a private buyer when it comes to employee and benefit issues?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. The biggest one uh, comes out is equity, because obviously a private buyer, if you have two public companies, uh, then a lot of times the the public company will just exchange their stock for the stock of the target company. Uh, and so employees that had stock options in there in the seller now have stock options in the buyer. Uh, whereas with a private company, uh, you're much less likely to see that. And so you're much more likely to see all equity just get cashed out, uh, and then new incentives put in place at, at, a private company. And so that, that's probably the biggest issue. And then there's also issues with how do you motivate employees post-closing? Um, again, uh, Public companies can be constrained in terms of the types of programs they might offer, especially at the executive level, because of public disclosure issues and the need to provide comparable benefits for their exist from their existing be- executive team. Whereas private buyers tend to have a little bit more flexibility, uh, given that they won't be subject to the compensation disclosure requirements of the SEC. You know, once the transaction closes.
1: And do you feel like there are certain things you are looking at in terms of the new Trump administration coming in where? your job may get particularly more interesting and or complicated because of a new set of regulations. Obviously, the healthcare care uh, thing seems to be pushed off a little bit and that there's not an immediate repeal and replace of Obamacare seemingly coming up. But are there other issues that are sort of top of mind or top of agenda that may drastically skew sort of an employment and and benefits analysis when it comes to M&A?
2: Probably less likely in the M&A space. Um, I mean, obviously, the Trump administration, it seems to be more friendly to merger and acquisition activity, and so that would uh, impact my practice. But the things related specifically to employee benefits, um, some rules regarding it, the tax reform is the biggest thing that we're looking at. Um, and it, it might come up in the M&A context, but more likely outside the M&A context, uh, just if there are changes to uh, the taxation of say, deferred compensation benefits, which is something that's on the table, uh, that would be a big change to, to our practice and maybe something that we'd have to deal with in M&A transactions as well. Um, but that's something that we're keeping an eye on is the tax reform. That's probably the biggest thing where we think there could be some changes.
1: Just a personal question, Sean. How did you get into this type of law? Uh,
2: so I always knew that I wanted, when I was in law school, uh, that I decided I didn't really want to go the litigation route, and so that my practice would be more of a transactional practice than a litigation practice, um, which are really the two big the first big choice that you can make is you want a litigation practice or a transactional practice. Uh, And then once I was in the transactional practice, I like these issues. I like the fact that you're dealing with executives and things that they're concerned about and employees and people. And so I I like those types of issues and I like the tax aspects of it. And so I gravitated towards the employee benefits practice within the transactional practice more generally.
1: Does it bother you that the outcome of these M and A situations are often the loss of many jobs? Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's something that you think about, and it's something that uh, you know you're. You, I feel bad when people are getting terminated. I feel bad in my day to day practice when I'm advising companies and they're terminating individuals. Um, but you know, ultimately, uh, you know, we're there to help companies and to help you know for public companies to help them extract the best value for shareholders. And so, uh, but yeah, certainly when they're talking about terminating uh, large l- large reductions in force, I, I definitely don't feel good about people losing their jobs.
1: I'm sure no one does as they go through this process. But, you know, I mean, that's the that's sort of the world we live in here, which is that the these deals come with uh, a reason uh, for them to be approved on by shareholders. And oftentimes that means uh, job cuts. Although it will be interesting to see if in the Trump administration, the synergy aspect of deals is played down for political reasons. Um, because uh, certainly Trump has been very outspoken about Job creation in this country. So any deal that's going to come in and immediately eliminate jobs may not play particularly well, politically speaking.
2: That's certainly right. And there's certainly transactions where the idea is that we're growing this large, you know, larger enterprise, and that we're going to hire a lot more people. So I mean, there there are transactions that are done where, uh, you know, the the benefits are not just sort of firing people and creating synergies, right? It's creating a larger enterprise that's going to scale up or do something like that, where uh, there are some good aspects of it as well.
1: Sean Feller, uh, an attorney partner at Gibson Dunn Los Angeles who specializes in executive compensation and employee benefits. Uh, I hope that was somewhat illuminating to those listening who have asked uh, or maybe just interested about how this particular uh, aspect of M&A can actually uh, play uh, you know quite a front and center role even if it isn't dictating which companies are bought and sold, certainly a lot of work and attention uh, are being spent on these issues that don't just happen magically. Uh, that you know there there needs to be a lot of analysis and then a lot of integration uh, after deals are announced. Sean, thanks for joining us. Uh, happy to do it. So that's it for this week's episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. You can catch all our episodes on iTunes or on Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, And please rate and review the show on iTunes if you have a chance. It helps other people find the show. Plus, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. And if you have any future suggestions for guest ideas or topics in addition to our uh, more traditional Deal of the Weeks, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, I'm at asherman6 at Bloomberg.net. See you next week.